Hello and welcome to a special edition of the In the Money Players podcast. We are recording this show on Tuesday, June 13th, but it's more evergreen content because we want to dive a bit deeper into the issue of computer-assisted wagering. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time. Uh, we've done this at, in live shows at points a couple of years ago at Equestricon. I do worry that in some of the contexts that computer players come up on these airwaves where we talk about them almost like a, a, a boogeyman to the recreational horse player. And that dynamic isn't 100% wrong, but it's certainly not 100% right. And I thought it would be wise to try to demystify the process a little bit and just continue this conversation. And I could think of no one better than a man who has some knowledge uh, in this area for sure. And he'll be familiar to you for many of the appearances he's made on this podcast, including his own eponymous interview series. He's Marshall Graham. Marshall, how are you? Doing great. Doing great, Peter. It was great to hang out with you over the weekend at the at the Belmont Stakes and, and actually for quite a bit longer in the city and and uh, excited to talk about uh, computer wagering. Uh, I'd meant to do a a um, computer wagering interview for my uh, for my uh, interview series. Actually, I had one for my class, but I, I didn't get permission from my interviewee to to sort of release it to the general public. He wanted a little bit more privacy, so this is at least a good way to uh, broach that topic, and the the two of us can talk about it. Let's start with your bona fides on the topic of computer wagering. When is this something you became aware of and how have you built your knowledge base on the topic? Well, I mean, I, I've been aware of it for as sort of, you know, 20 years. I mean, for as long as I've been sort of playing the horses through an ADW, um, you know, I was aware of both the opportunities to to sort of create a model in a computer-based wagering system and, you know, the rumors about the other people who are out there. I mean, Benter, Bill Benter, the sort of legendary uh, computer modeler, uh, maybe the, the godfather or grandfather of, of computer modeling based in Hong Kong, they're always, uh, you know, he was always a legend even 20, 30 years ago for what he was doing in Hong Kong. So, you know, as sort of soon as I got into to the position where I was, I was betting and going to economic conferences related to betting markets and horse racing. I had heard Benter's name and, um, and he'd had quite a devoted following, um, especially from sort of international economists who did research on betting markets. And, um, you know, at some point, uh, you know, I, a, a colleague and I took the dive and did, did some modeling of our own. And so, you know, we've been sort of in the space in a very small time in a very small time position. I do think it is, it is a little bit of a guess what the bigger teams do, but there is information out there um, that, that can guide you if you want to at least get an idea of what teams do, or even in, in a sense, create your own team. Very interesting. And I know we'll have some people listening who will be interested in that. We'll get there. The first computer wagering I was aware of was actually on the sports side, the famous, computer group in Las Vegas. There's great information about them in the Richard Munchkin book, Gambling Wizards. I think that was as far back as the 70s. Was Benter consciously patterning the modeling he started to do in Hong Kong from those cats? Or do you think it's one of these things of people independently coming up with the same type of idea and he just turned his attention to horse racing? That would be my guess that, that he had separately come up with the idea and turned his attention to horse racing. I mean, there's a great article 
um, in 2018 in Bloomberg by Kit Schillel, I think is, is the author's name, The Gambler Who Cracked the Code, The Horse, The Gambler Who Cracked the Horse Racing Code. They're also, if, I mean, if you just Google Bill Bent or, or look for him in YouTube, they're lectures that um, he's done. Uh, the horse racing modeling goes back to an original article published in Management Science written by Ruth Bolton and Randall Chapman called Searching for Positive Returns at the Track, a Multinomial Logit Model for Handicapping Horse Racing. And so that that kind of was the basis for uh, these modeling of, of horse races to try to get predictive probabilities to make bets. Um, Venter himself acknowledges that that article as a starting point. And then Venter wrote an article in 1994, which I think is, the, the again, the basis for computer teams, the um, uh, uh, called computer-based uh, computer-based horse racing handicapping and wagering systems a report, and so again you can find both of those articles. You can Google and find both of those articles out there, and those um, those are are sort of the the basis for um, many computer modeling techniques. Now, what they both call for is a multinomial logit, and that's just a regression technique. That's just a modeling technique uh, for when you have a categorical dependent variable. So our dependent variable, in this case, is your finished position, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on. And so when we run this regression, we run Explain, this regression. Let me back you up right there, Marshall, just for some of the people out there who might not understand what a regression analysis is. Well, we're using, we're using a set of variables. Okay. In this case, our variables are all sorts of racetrack variables that you can imagine. The, the current condition of the horse, past performances of the horse, you know, weight, post position, uh, you know, uh, uh, pace figures, and any sort of things related to a horse in its, in its, its context in a race, right? And we're using that information to try to figure out, uh, you know, whether a horse is going to win or not, right? And so that historical analysis of statistics designed to predict the future, not necessarily who's going to win, but what chance the horse is going to win. Am I saying yeah, that? And, and in a sense, it's like doing a, an, an experiment, but our experiment is all these historical races. And so we have a data set of historical races and we use the information from those historical races. Again, like I, I was saying, the past performances of the horses, uh, weight carried, jockey, trainer, all sorts of information that are, are variables in our model to make, uh, uh, to, to determine uh, the probability that the horse wins, right? Our, our dependent variable, what we, what we sort of push onto all of those variables is uh, whether the horse wins or whether the horse finishes second. It's our, in a sense, we have a categorical dependent variable, first, second, third, or fourth. We're sort of focused, I mean, to sort of for, for, for simplicity's sake, Think of this as a zero-one variable, zero the horse loses, one the horse wins. And we're trying to figure out, right, use the information that we have that's available from all those previous races, um, whether a horse with particular characteristics, what are its chances of winning a race? Now, when we run a regression, we get information or coefficients on each of these variables. And so that tells us whether those variables uh, influence uh, the probability that the horse wins. For example, weight may be a factor in horse racing, right? We'd like to think of it as a factor. A horse that carries more weight has a lower probability of winning. And so what we get in our regression model is we both get direction and, and magnitude. So the higher the weight, um, this is again, a, a 
you know, I'm not necessarily speaking of results. I, you know, I would assume the higher the weight, the lower the probability of winning. So that's that's the direction, right? But we also get the magnitude, right? Maybe each additional pound, right, reduces the probability of winning by, uh, uh, you know, a third of a percent or something like that. So these, so with these variables, we get direction and magnitude. And so for any uh, particular horse race, right? Uh, there are all of these little factors that affect probabilities. And then based on all these little factors that we've learned from our, from all of this historical data, we can get probabilities for each horse. And so that's what these techniques allow us to do. And this, these are, you know, sort of broader regression techniques and there are many different regression techniques that exist. And now you hear words like machine learning. That's just a way to work with your data to turn it into sort of some sort of predictive model, right? So in essence, we're doing forecasting based on past data. It's a very good description that I think people will be able to, to get their heads around. And, you know, production meeting in the middle of the show, you mentioned a couple of very interesting links already. People might be wanting to check out. Maybe we should put together some really nice show notes for this, Marshall, where we link to you know, if you know a particularly good video or particularly in the articles you mentioned before, we'll make it real easy for people and just slug them in the, the description, the notes for this show, if you're, if you're game to do that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot out there. So, you know, so again, this modeling is a part of what these computer teams do, right? And so based on, on the sort of early work of Bolton, Chapman, and Benter, right, the multinomial logit was the, the sort of techniques that Benter used. And now, uh, now these teams have gone off in many different directions using many different uh, techniques for looking at their data. I've already mentioned machine learning. And, and the one thing about machine learning, I think it's important to understand, it sounds more frightening than it really is. It's <laughs> just it's just a, a, a data forecasting technique, right? It's not like computers are out there making decisions on, on um, you know, how to, you know, how to handicap races, right? We're just, just looking from AI. Machine yes. learning is something completely separate from AI. It, well, it's just, you know, this machine learning, or, or, or we, it takes data and runs a number of different regression techniques to try to optimize, uh, optimize uh, the model. The problem with many of those techniques is they tend to overfit. And one of the things that sort of is a great concern with doing forecasting is overfitting your data. And, and when you do that, when you start looking at, at a sample, and what I mean by that is when you're working with with data, right? You have the in sample, the, the data that you're looking at to build your model. So those are particular races that you're looking at, right? Maybe you have 10,000 races that you're looking at. But ultimately, when you're betting, you're doing that at a sample, right? Those are races that aren't in your model, right? And so you end up with problems that if your data is so well fit to, to if your model is so well fit to your data that you have been working with, when you apply it to new data, it might not work. And so is another way is another way of saying that, Marshall, that you can when you're looking at a strict set of already established data and trying to predict basically you're looking at the past, you're trying to predict the future, you can get the, this idea of overfitting is you can almost find patterns that aren't there based on those specific examples that happen. Exactly. In the past. Based on this based on those specific races. And so, yeah. you know, anyone who does forecasting typically splits their data. Right. They look at they take part of their data to build a model and then they use the other part of their data to 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 apply their model to do simulated betting. Right. And so 
um, these teams, you know, they, they, they will work on their model, their add variables, and these are quite complicated variables. My guess is it is heavy on the Sartan Brohammer um, pace, uh, you know, pace stuff. I think that when we think of, of the, the early models, I think they're probably heavy on Sartan Brohammer uh, as well as uh, speed figure based. There are already a lot of black box type solutions of type uh, models that exist out there that you can access, right? Like Explain it, what a black box model means. Um, a black box model is a model where you don't necessarily know the, the, how the model works. It's just giving you output, right? For example, if anyone's used black magic, uh, it'll give you, it'll, it'll give you uh, certain horses and, and certain, certain particular long shots. Uh, um, it, it'll give you, you know, some things that are influencing a particular race and potential outcomes, but, uh, but you don't really know what's going on in the background. It's not telling you why it came up with certain selections and even it's not telling you how it built certain variables that it uses. So HTR, HTR, another example, you know, I mean, I think Brohammer had something to do with the actual creation of, of that back in the day with Ken Massa and the team to your point of, you know, these commercially available computer models, definitely relying on Sartan Brohammer. And for those that don't know this, what we're talking about, really, it's very, I love it because it's very in the weeds of pace handicapping and using, um, using velocity and optimal race efficiency and looking, breaking down the race into component parts via pace. I think it's very, very powerful. And I would agree just from what we see in the markets that these things are, are a very big factor to the way uh, the computer handicapping is working today. Yeah. And, and ultimately with all, all of these, all of these models uh, is that, that we don't, you know, these ones that are publicly available is we don't necessarily know, uh, if we have their variables, we don't know how they construct them, right? If we have their picks and probabilities, uh, we don't know how they came up with them. So that's what we mean by, by black box. But they are out there, right? There, there are, are um, sort of publicly available models um, that, uh, that give you probabilities. And they're even, you know, even uh, like if you bet through ExpressBet, they have, you know, an AI uh, that gives you uh, the, their sort of model probability. So, so in, in a basic sense, they're they're out there and, and publicly available. But the computer teams obviously do things um, at a much higher level. And so, from their models um, and all their inputs, and they're using not only you know past performance data like that we would look at. They they probably have uh, you know people watching races, doing trips. Uh, you can hear rumors of people who are at the track looking at a horse's current condition. Uh, they have a team of programmers. So these are not small time operations, right? They, they have expenses. They have people on salary. Um, the programming expenses alone uh, would be very high. They're, they're working with clean data. And, uh, you know, if you've ever worked with, with, with data in horse racing, it is, it is expensive and difficult to clean. Um, uh, to put it in a form that you can, you know, work with it and, and build a model from it. And so once they build their model, right, they use that model to generate probabilities for each particular horse, the probability that that horse wins a particular race. And they, not only do they use those, uh, use those probabilities, they sort of bent or figured out that the pro- probabilities themselves weren't good enough to win. So when building this model- 
I want to stop there, Marshall, because I think it's a good it's a good point. I have another I have a follow up question about how the data gets worked with in terms of you know what people are using. And I also want to say that up to this point in the conversation, I don't think there's anyone in the world who should have an objection to what computers are doing because this is something that is essentially available, you know, to to anybody. There's no special advantage. This is something that takes uh, a, a tremendous investment and but it's absolutely like fair competition. Nobody could possibly object to anything we've talked to up to this point. But let me ask that follow up about when you talk about working with clean data, etc. What are the tools that people are using? It's not as simple as just using Excel to to manipulate this data, right? No, I mean, I, I, the the I mean, Excel. You could work with an Excel, but it would be fairly messy. So they're using programs like R or Stata, right? And so or or SAS or some. There are plenty of programs out there where they're using it to to first of all, they're working with large data sets, right? Because uh, they're working with historical data. Um, and they're, you know, looking at all sorts of races, all sorts of conditions with a large number of variables. And so, um, you know, typically each horse in a, in a race represents an observation. And then, um, and then you sort of multiply that by the number of variables you have. So maybe you have, you know, the, a couple hundred variables, right? Information about that. Well, you end up with, you know, maybe you end up with a lot of zero one variables, like. Uh, post position one, post position two, post position three, those that represents a particular variable, right? Gotcha. Um, and so um, and so the data sets can be very large and unmanageable in a program like like um, Excel, right? And then you know the the problem with Excel is the inability to manipulate like the, your data like you would want to, right? If we if you go in and work in Excel, you may manipulate your data and you may may um, actually deform your original data set. Right. So if you've ever done any working in Excel, I think it's like on a grade sheet. Right. If I mistype a number, I've kind of uh, ruined my grade sheet and, and might uh, misgrade a student. Whereas, um, you know, you work in R, you work in Stata, you work in some other statistical package that allows you to program. You pull your your raw data in and then you clean that data up. Right. Put it in a form where you can uh, run regression. So you turn post position one into a zero one dummy variable for for post one, right? So you have your list of post positions, you create dummy variables for that, right? Zero one variables that can therefore trigger something in a regression, right? If you draw post position one, that increases your probability of winning uh, by, you know, 0.06 percentage points, right? So that would be be how you sort of create particular variables. And maybe you maybe you even create a new variable that interacts, right, post position one with a sprint race. So in sprint races, having the rail post position draw actually reduces your probability of winning by 0.09 percentage points. But in route races, it increases your probability of winning by 0.07%. And then maybe you even incorporate that with track bias. And so you can imagine all sorts of complicated variables that can be created from a very simple variable like post position. Right. Um, what do you so, need? What kind of knowledge do you need to learn those? Uh, they're essentially programming languages. What you're describing. I mean, do you need like 
do you have to study coding for a year or can you sort of learn it on the fly or like, like I don't understand how down the rabbit hole you have to go to be doing the kinds of things you're, you're talking about from a programming point of view? Uh, I don't, I, I guess I'm not even sure the answer to that either. I, I think that uh, some coding background would certainly help. Um, I mean, I, I picked up, uh, you know, some ability to program and work in Stata as a graduate student, but now, you know, now most college grads are taking some coding or learning some Python or working in R or Stata. Um, in econometrics, uh, which I will teach this fall, uh, I, we will do um, Stata. We also offer uh, 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 a class on data management and uh, analysis where we do R and Stata. So, uh, so many students now, many college students now are doing some programming. I, I would guess high school students do some programming. So, and you know, parents is taking coding classes. I mean, it's it's all the way down. Yeah, and so I think the, the the exciting part of that is there are a lot of younger people who are getting interested in racing. Who this is the way they want to attack handicapping racing, and I, I've seen it with my students in my classes is that they are interested in building model building, right? Kind of putting what they've learned in econometrics or in some of their other classes. Uh, to see if they can build a model and, and to learn about their sport through building a model. Now, the problem, and we'll probably get into this later, is if you want to build a model with horse racing, it's expensive and it's time consuming, right? You have to buy data from Equibase or somewhere else, and that's not cheap. And then you have to, you know, clean it, which is is time consuming. And all of, all of that to build a model um, for racing, which you'll probably ultimately uh, lose, right? I mean, it's, it's very tricky to do it. And, and you're facing, you know, you're facing a fairly big hurdle in terms of takeout rates, whereas you can build a model for golf, build a model for the NBA or NFL, and the data is fairly accessible. And you're, and when you're making bets, you're betting into a much lower takeout. So I do think, and, and this is sort of a side topic that we've gone off in, uh, gone off at is that a lot of younger people are interested in modeling. And in some ways, if we have more people doing modeling, that's more money in the pools. Not all these people are going to win, right? It's just another way, a different way to approach handicapping, right? So if, if there was a speed figure revolution and then trip handicapping, uh, then, you know, now we have this sort of computer age of people building their own models, so a um, couple other interesting points is related to that. Benter in his earlier article said that a thousand races were ideal. That seems that number seems a little bit low to me, yeah. but uh, to avoid overfitting, that he thought a thousand races were ideal. If you start going back too far in time, you end up with uh, you know race where races and and odds odds prices that um, uh, don't really fit what you know today's public sees. Right? I mean. Uh, the public is always evolving in terms of the way that they attack races. And so we can even see it in the, in the prices when we were at Belmont this weekend, right? Is that, that those races were bet differently than they would have bet, been bet five or 10 years ago. Um, ideally, you're working in a closed environment, right? Uh, uh, that's what made, makes Hong Kong so appealing to a lot of um, modelers, right? First of all, Hong Kong has giant pools, right? huge liquidity so they can bet as much as they want. But the second part of it is it's a closed environment. You've got the same horses running twice a week over the course of the meet, right? Whereas in the U.S., you have horses coming from all different tracks and it makes uh, modeling much more complicated. Now, that is important to note because it also gives advantage to regular horse players, right? The more, you know, the more shippers involved, uh, horses moving from different surfaces, 
right? The more the, the maybe the the better chance a handicapper has against the model. The yeah. other part, the other important point that that uh, Benter brings up and is still an important source and and somewhat controversial uh, as we see it applied now is that uh, these models themselves uh, typically aren't able to beat the races. What they need is is the incorporation of the public's assessment of of the race. And market so, signal. yes, they need that market signal. And so what these models do is they bring in the public's information. That becomes part of their model. And so in essence, they're building off, right, what the public, how the public evaluates a race, right? And so instead their signal becomes based on the public's perception of the race, a horse that draws the rail and is, um, draws the rail going a route of ground with the, with the track bias, right, has this much additional chance of winning the race over what the public's perceptions are. And so that was really important. So what these models do is, right, they take in the public odds. That's a variable in their model. And they're crunching those numbers at the last second, right, because they want the odds at their closest to their true or final values. And so they're taking the odds at the last second and they're incorporating to those models. They're getting probabilities, right, in an instant and then using those probabilities to construct bets, right? So that's, um, that's why they're betting so late. They need the information from the public. They need our information, right? They need the better's assessment of a race. And so they're making their bets at the last possible moment. They're incorporating those odds into their models. That's a variable in their models, Right. And then they get, get, get probability spit out and they make their bet. So that's the modeling part of it. Right. Yeah, that's well, the modeling just, part and, of it. And let me pause on that to point out that it's not just another factor, this market signal. It's, you know, from what I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you could have, you know, whatever, there's a hundred things you're looking at, maybe 30 significant factors, the most predictive of any of them is going to be that closing price. It's 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 the whole uh, ball game in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I mean, so it is the most important variable that they add to their models. And so, and, and again, like we would say, if you were the starting point of looking at the races is the odds board. The public is very, very sharp in their assessment of who's going to race it, win a race. And that's historically true, right? That, um, that uh, horses that are five to one fair odds typically win in the long run over a long time horizon, one sixth of the time. Yep. Um, it used to be that the public tended to overbet long shots and underbet favorites. And if you went to like Sam Houston, uh, Sam Houston sort of cut off from the rest of the world. Texas is cut off from the rest of the world, which offers an interesting experiment. You go to these racetracks and you have no computer betting, right? You have, uh, uh, you know, just horse players who are at the track or who, who are in the state of Texas at, a, at, a, at another track who are making bets. And so therefore you're getting sort of, it's like stepping back in time and you're seeing that the public tends to underbet the favorites, overbet long shots. Um, you tend to have especially flat pools in the place and show pool. And so there's real opportunities just, you know, betting favorites and uh, um, uh, uh, taking an approach where you're really sort of focused on on uh, uh, taking advantage of these pools that are inefficiently bet. Well, the computers. I'd argue, Marshall, I'd argue that um, to a lesser degree than Texas, that you see that phenomenon a little bit on Derby and, and Preakness Day as well. Oh, that's absolutely true. There's nothing that the, the Derby, Preakness, Belmont, uh, 
uh, odds in the wind pool, especially, you know, often make little little to no sense. The Preakness this year was 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 shocking how short some prices were, and so um, all that all those on regular days go away, right? The uh, people can't bet in the same Houston Lone Star. The computers can't bet into it. You have to be on track, and so um, so that makes them unique in the Derby, in the Preakness, especially in the Belmont to a lesser extent. There's so much money being bet on those races that um, the computer the computer money and the sharp money is, um, you know, it doesn't play as big a role, right? No computer is going to try to arb the, um, the derby wind pool to try to make it more efficient because they risk their entire year of, uh, you know, they risk their entire year or their entire, uh, their entire uh, life earnings on that, right? You can make the derby more efficient, pool more efficient with, you know, betting tens, uh, betting you know millions of dollars into it, and you can get a rich strike result, which no one has, right? And get crushed, right? You have to. We have to remember that these computers do often lose, right? They're they're looking at uh, making very small profits um, with large rebates over you know thousands of bets daily. So we've gotten to the point. So back so back on topic, we've gotten to the point of the model, right? The model spits out probabilities. It uses the public's information. And based on those probabilities, then we get to the second part where the model, where, where these teams build tickets. So they take those probabilities and they build tickets across all sorts of wagers, across the wind pool, place, show, uh, a little bit less so, uh, um, uh, exacta, trifecta, superfecta. And they can build very efficient tickets. So whereas if you went to the window and bet the superfecta, Right, you're betting it maybe you know in a you know something like uh, what I like to do is a like one by two by all by two. So I you know I take the horse that I think can win win the race. I may use two horses and key them underneath two longer shots and key them then underneath with most of the rest of the field, right? And so in doing that, you know I, I make four or five tickets, right? One by two by all by two, one by all by two by two, and then I bring it. I I make a trifecta ticket one by two by two. Right. And so that would be three tickets I've made. Um, but they're inefficient in terms of, you know, I don't necessarily weight uh, my all leg efficiently. Plus, even in using, you know, two horses underneath, I may like one more than the other and not weight them correctly. Well, the computers can do all that based upon their probabilities. Now, these probabilities. Let's these stop there just for one second because I, I want to explain if somebody doesn't know what you mean by efficiency. The idea is in a perfectly, the ticket you just described, if it was efficient, you'd have more combinations with the shorter prices and fewer combinations with the long shots in that all leg. You, in other words, not every, it's weighted where you're good. If you were doing it efficiently, you're good kind of no matter how it comes. Whereas the way you're playing it, you could still get a little bit upside down or at least not maximize your value if a favorite comes in that all leg as opposed to a long shot. I just want yeah. people to understand that. Yeah, whether it's whether it's using whether that all leg would be filled in by the public's probabilities or whether it'd be filled in by horses that I think have a bigger edge uh, than what the public probabilities are. These are complicated things to do um, in real time. Certainly at the racetrack it's a complicated thing to do, right? And so what these computers do can do is they can you know, they can come up with, you know, 2,500, you know, 2,500 uh, uh, super effective bets that are all efficient based upon the probabilities they built, right? $250 worth of 10 cent supers, right? Where they, um, where they are, you know, maybe pressing their best opinions and still hitting it if, if um, you know, 
some other opinions that, that, that aren't particularly theirs come in, right? So they're able to create very efficient tickets down to the dime for any wager that they're in. So they tend to be better and to dominate pools that are more complicated, where they can build complicated tickets. So the superfecta, the trifecta, the pick five, the pick six, they can bet all these wagers effectively. Um, The multi-race wagers, they can use, they have the public's information for uh, the, the first race of the sequence, Based on the doubles, they get it for the second race of the sequence, and then their model's good enough to see third, fourth, and fifth race down. The trifecta and superfecta, they have their win probabilities. It is actually very complicated to come up with the second, third, and fourth uh, 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 place horse, right? It's the coming up with the probability of a horse finishing fourth in the superfecta is extremely tricky, and uh, uh, the probabilities tend to get fairly flat in the fourth, um, fourth spot. But it's it's not it's a disadvantage to use the all button. So they, these um, these teams can be very efficient in creating their bets, and then so they create these large number of bets, right? And then what they have is they are able to interact with the tote system or their ADW, and they're able to upload these bets at lightning fast speed. So there's this is where we get into the first real advantage that the teams have over players. Everything, everything that, that we've talked about, you can do, right? Now, it's, it's not easy, but if you have programming skills and have the data, you can build a model, right? Come up with probabilities. But is actually processing these bets um, uh, can't be done. Uh, a typical horse player is limited to three bets per second by their ADW. But these teams have the ability to upload thousands of bets a second. And so that's a real advantage that the teams have. So that's their their first big advantage. Their second big advantage is pricing, and we'll certainly get into that. Oh, but yeah. they can these bets can be uploaded at lightning fast speeds. And so basically, you know, a race is about to go off. You know that the maybe the final couple horses are being loaded. Uh, the they take the public's odds, they incorporate those odds into their models. Probabilities are spit out. They use those probabilities to make bets in all sorts of pools that are available in a particular race. They want to hit all the pools. Um, they adjust their bet sizes based upon another tricky thing in, in, uh, that they have to adjust it for is the um, pool size, right? You don't want to overbet a pool. And so they adjust them based upon the pool size. Um, they're making optimal bets down to the dime for the superfecta. They upload all those bets at lightning fast speed through their ADW and then, um, and then sit and watch the results. And, uh, you know, they, these teams, you know, win, but they win, you know, they win at a very low rate, right? They, you know, maybe two to three to 5% above what their effective takeout or after rebate takeout would be. So all these teams would lose if they didn't get rebates and they would lose substantially, but they're making a profit um, above what their effective ticket is, their after rebate takeout. And so, you know, if they made huge profits, they would just bet more, right? And so, you know, their, their right. goal you is- bet it down. You know, that's what I, that's what cracks me up sometimes when people say, well, how could it be a problem they're losing? Like the whole idea with what their pricing is, like you would, if they were in theory winning more, they'd just bet more to, to get to, it's all about churning money and getting the rebate really. So there's no real reason like from a, from a 
risk and reward point of view for them to have a positive ROI. They're better off just bet having a lower ROI, betting more and making more money in aggregate. I also want to chime in that, you know, when we talk about how in theory, the lower bet minimums in theory, when I first heard about them a bazillion years ago, I thought, oh my God, this is so great for the horse player because I can bet now like a professional player, even though I don't have that bankroll. But because of the what you just described, Marshall, I think we're showing why the low minimums actually just turn some of these pools into a benefit for the computer teams because they can be so much more efficient when they can bet down to the dime, down to 50 cents, as opposed to having to spend a dollar or, or $2. Am I on to something with either of those points? Yeah. I mean, both of them are true. And especially the point about like, look, the reason that we went down to these smaller minimums, at least in part, was because of the W2Gs and withholdings um, related to gambling winnings, right? Well, that that's no longer an issue, right? And so these 10 cent super effective, 50 cent tries, right? All of these just really, really benefit the teams. And so, and the teams are able to more and more efficiently create their wagers in these pools that are already high takeout, right? So, you know, the Superfecta, you know, I know there's a lot of criticism of the pick five because we have evidence of teams coming in on carryover days and just crushing it, right? Um, uh, if if, if uh, you want more information about that, please read all the great stuff that Pat Cummings has done with the TIF. Um, but what we can't see is how well they do in the Superfecta and Trifecta, right? We don't really have that that test case, right? Pat draws his test case from how well the teams do on force out days versus regular days based upon overall handle, right? So um, in the superfecta, since the superfecta is offered every day, offered every day, we don't specifically know how well they do, but I would suspect they crush those pools, right? They're competing against horse players who don't have the ability to create um the ability to create as efficient tickets as they do on a race by race basis. And um, also a lot of people who play the Superfecta are casual players who, who are playing it in the, you know, in a very poor manner in terms of the way that they box their tickets. And so, um, so it's an area that, that I would guess the teams crush. And on top of everything I've said, the Superfecta is often a very high takeout wager and, it's important that when we think of takeout, right? You know, typical track might have, I think Naira has what, 16% uh, win play show, 18.5% um, on exactas, um, and then 20 exactas and doubles, and maybe 24% on tries and pick fours and pick threes. I, th- I, think, I think it's somewhere in that range. Um, and there are certain tracks that can even go up to 30% for the try and super. For anyone who gets rebates, their rebates, um, Ten, their effective takeout tends to be flat. So, for example, um, if I'm getting rebates on, let's say, New York, uh, and let's say I'm hypothetically paying a 10% effective takeout. So my rebate on the win pool would be 6%. My rebate on the exacta and double would be 8.5%. And my rebate on the, on the try and super and pick four and pick three would be 14%. So my rebate changes based upon what the takeout is. My effective takeout and the effective takeout for these teams and for anyone who's really rebated is the same across all wagers. And so the takeout rate, the differences in the takeout really affect the casual player. And so the the, C, the CAWs and the people who get rebates have a huge advantage 
in the trifecta and superfecta because they're paying a much, much lower effective takeout, right? In my example, right, they're only paying 10% across all wagers, while someone who plays a superfecta in New York is paying 24%. And so that's a huge disadvantage to a casual player. They're much better off in the wind pool where they're just paying 16%, and the wager's not complicated. Right. Right. There's no such, well, there is such a thing as efficiency. If you're doing like a double win bet, I suppose you could weight it, but it's much, much easier to overcome all that stuff. Do you, do the computers get bigger rebates than even a player, uh, you know, the biggest computer teams, they're getting bigger rebates than, than, than you are true or false. Yeah, I would guess they are. I mean, the important thing is these, these huge teams that, that uh, effectively are their own ADWs, right? These, uh, these elite groups. And again, I'm not an expert on them. Um, I just, you know, again, know, I've learned what I've read from Cat, Pat Cummings. He's really one to talk to about elite. Um, but these elite groups are effectively their own ADWs. And so they negotiate, can negotiate directly with the tracks. And so, you know, what, what is different about, about the, the, um, those teams and their relationship to the tracks is that is that as they bet more, right? Um, they're putting more money into the to the tracks coffers, right? And and I think that's there's a misunderstanding, right? That these teams they bet a huge amount of money, and the tracks are making a lot of money off them, right? The more you bet, the more the track is making. So when we think about like the 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 what goes into the takeout rate, so let's say, and again, I'm using hypothetical. I don't actually have the numbers from Naira. Let's say that that Naira has a 16% takeout rate, right, for the wind pool. And their let's say their host fee is 8%, right? So the track keeps 8%. That's actually too low. I, I'm almost certain Naira's is higher. So the track, the track and every the track host fees 8%. Maybe there's 2% of other fees, like um, the tote fee, like the Roberts fee. Okay, so that's 10% total. So ADWs have a 6% margin to work with. Okay, and so uh, that six percent margin to their high volume players, they may give almost all that back to their high volume players to incent them to bet more. Right. So if you're a million dollar player, maybe they only keep a half a percent of what you bet and let you keep the other five and a half percent to incent you to bet more, to lower your effective takeout. And to give you a better shot at being a winner, and as you're a winner, you tend to churn more money. So it's creating churn, right? And so uh, they're in essence doing what's called second degree price discrimination or, or, or block pricing, right? The more the more that uh, you buy, the bigger discount you're, we're going to give you. And so um, uh, and so uh, you know a casual player, right, may get a two percent rebate. Where the ADW keeps four percent, and a, a, a complete you know complete novice will get the you know promos right. Hey, bet a hundred, we'll give you a hundred, but then ultimately pay the full takeout. And so all of these rebates, they're all coming from the ADW side, right? I think that's important to understand. Is it is not taking money from the track, right? It's not taking money from all the fees that come into that initial 10%, the host fee stays the same. It's the ADW, right, that um, that's giving up, right, part of what they hold. And so I, I would think that, you know, we shouldn't, horsemen shouldn't view rebates negatively, right? Rebates don't affect them. The host fees that the tracks charges 
are now all um, effectively reflect, uh, you know, how good a racetrack is. And so it's important to step back in time, right? When, when uh, track started simulcasting, they sold their fees for a very small percentage of, they didn't uh, know what they had. They thought yeah, they it, didn't know what they had. Any right. part of the handle, they treat the, the phrase I've used that, that I'm stealing from Mike Maloney found money is what they thought. Yeah. So when, you know, when, when a track like Ellis would sell their signal to New York, you know, they would get something like 2% for their signal because it was found money, right? They were already getting plenty of money on track. Here's new money that they're going to get. They didn't realize that within a decade, everyone would be playing um, off track. Right. So for them, it was found money and those rates were set too low initially. But those days are long gone. Right. Host fees are much higher to where, you know, some of the biggest tracks are getting 10 to 11 percent host fee. So whereas that, you know, 10 to 12 percent. Right. Um, uh, percentage points. Right. 10 to 12 percentage points of the takeout is host fee. And what's remaining after the host fee and the small fees from Roberts and the tote system and everyone else, TVG, right, is what the ADW's margins, it, what the margins an ADW has to work with its players, right? If an ADW, if you're a casual player or if you're in a, if you're in a state that doesn't allow rebates or has source market fees, then you're paying full freight. If you're a large player, right, your ADW is going to give you some of that margin back. And for the teams, they're getting almost all that margin back. In some sense, in some cases, they're their own ADW, and they may even negotiate with the track to lower host fee. Now, I don't know much about that, and I don't, uh, you know, I, I'm no not even transparency here, Marshall, which is part yeah. of the problem. Don't you agree? Well, and, and the other part of it is that if if you are one big better, right, and 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 you bet huge sums of money, you'd be able to go to different tracks or go to um, you know, CDI and say, Hey, I'm going to bet X amount of money. Uh, can, can we price differently? Uh, can you give me a better price? And if it is worthwhile to CDI for CDI for you to do so, right. If they make more money by you betting more, just because of the greater churn, then they're going to, you know, they're going to accommodate you. Whereas with the sort of broader horse playing audience, um, when tracks adjust their their takeout rates, um, they don't know whether their revenues are going to rise or going to fall, right? In some, in some ways, they view uh, sort of casual players as, uh, as, um, as, 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 not, as people who are going to stay with racing, um, and uh, regardless of what the takeout is going to be set, and so it's set high. They're not willing to take the risk to lower takeout to, to at least see if if uh, by lowering takeout, they can increase revenue that um, that players would churn more, that new players would come to the game. They're not willing to take that long run bet. You're right? saying this in, a, in the most political way possible, Marshall. I mean, they're treating them, they're treating that. I mean, you're saying the same thing, but I'm going to just put a finer point on it. You treat their customers like mugs who just have no clue and are not are, are not going to be price sensitive. And maybe if you go and ask them, they don't even know what the takeout is. But that doesn't mean that over time, and it doesn't even take much time, they get ground out by these unfair economic conditions. Everybody gets in retail, Toys R Us, you buy 100 Mickey Mouse dolls, you're going to get a better price than one Mickey Mouse doll. But when you're doing that kind of pricing, and you use the perfect economic term for it, it's already gone out of my head. But when you do that in a market, something very different, and I think much more sinister, 
is happening in the effect that it has on the casual money that you need to create a healthy marketplace. Well, the other thing is they realize in rebating, right, with these teams that these teams are price sensitive and they bet huge amounts of money because they're getting a lower price, but they're unwilling to do that with their casual player, right? And so the big advantage that teams have is they can make more than three bets per second. They can make make an infinite number of bets per second versus three bets per second. And their effective takeout is much, much, much lower. And so the thing that would even things out for players would be to either remove the restriction. I would be for removing the restriction of three bets per second and let everybody have the throughput that they would need to make bets in the last second. Um, or limit everyone else, limit, limit the teams to three bets per second. Now, I, I think the teams would find ways around this. I think um, you know the teams can find a way around three bets per second by just having multiple accounts, right? So there are ways around um, you know all these restrictions that we're talking about. I mean, we hear about how that um, we hear about the teams that, that we hear that the teams aren't in Naira's wind pool, and to some extent that's true, but it is easy and enough for them to create other accounts and bet through Naira's pool indirectly, right? And you don't have to be a registered team to do forms of computer betting, right? And upload wagers, right? That that can be done uh, without being a registered team. And even if we lock them out of the back end, they can come right in through the front, right? Uh, have a, That's, you know, a what program that's- this gets ahead. This was a point I wanted to make later, but I'll just be honest. This is where I get a little skeptical because I totally agree what you're saying that, that they could get into the supposedly locked out Naira wind pool. And to me, the fact that they're not doing that suggests maybe something even maybe it's as simple as being able to dump the bets at the last second and not not having that access smoothly changes the way they operate. But it also makes me worry and again, the lack of transparency plays into this, that somehow, and I don't know how, and, and you know, b- blame me for putting on a tinfoil hat here if you want, but that somehow somebody's getting promised the ability to go last. I mean, I've heard of horse player experiments in smaller pools of bets being placed at the last second that would be enough at a small track to change the prices and the, the player conducting the experiment, not really caring if they won or lost on the bet, like picking almost, you know, horses, fringe horses, and those prices still getting correct and never being able to go last and change the price. I worry about something like that. I mean, I think as unfair as the the three bets per second to unlimited is, the idea that someone is getting promised to go last, that's the same thing as past posting in my view. Oh, I I agree, but I don't, you know, I don't know what, I don't know, you know, I don't know how, we sort of proved to ourselves that that's not going on. I mean, that, you know, that's the huge leap of faith we take that everything is on the up and up um, in Oregon, uh, in our tote system. Um, but that, I mean, that's, that's, you know, but, but you're right. That's tinfoil hat, tinfoil hat stuff. If that exists, then it, it, it's a real problem in terms of betting the game. And and there's certainly instances of past posting. I know Maloney's referred to him in his, uh, in the in the book that uh, that you and him worked on together, has that the last chapter he wrote about toad integrity. Integrity, I think, is a must read for everybody. And so, yes, that's a worry. I, in some sense, I don't know how to even even discuss it since it's 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 um, it is it is um, 
you know, it, it's either paranoia or something that's out there, right? But it's, well, it's transparency would get me over this, this, these thinking these kind of things and saying them on the airwaves. I just feel like everything that happens is so it's it's cloak and dagger. It's it's behind closed doors, and it's uh, it's it it doesn't lead to a healthy marketplace. Well, and you know, like we always talk about, is that the tote system is antiquated. Can't you know? That's it, the other problem. The way it clears bets, especially more complicated wagers, is problematic. The way we can't build new wagers because it's antiquated is problematic. Uh, you know, probably the way uh, that the totes merge is also part of an issue. Is part of an issue, and and I think that you know, whereas um, we've had a lot of movement towards uh, you know towards fixing the game, uh, uh, you know, centralizing the game and fixing the game through HISA. Uh, I don't think HISA has looked at all to one of the biggest sources of integrity of of lack of integrity uh, in the game, and that's the the tote system. That's the timing of races. That's things that's related to uh, the handicapping and betting on horses. In many ways, that's that's as big a place to start as anywhere else, yeah, right? If we think that. about the integrity of our sport, I don't disagree at all. And again, you know, free consulting. Anybody listening from over there, free consulting from us if. Uh, if you want to talk about it, and I know that somebody like Mike Maloney would would feel would feel the same way. There's a really important thing I want to ask you, Marshall, that we haven't that we haven't gotten to yet, and that's I feel like if someone coming from the outside heard this conversation, they would think, oh, the problem is we, we could solve this problem if we solve solve the pricing by everybody pays the same price, and. I'm not sure that's exactly wrong, but I think that we're like too far down the rabbit hole of the existing institution where that's a realistic solution. I think the way the game is presently constructed, you know, I'm not sure that it's a good idea for for rebates to go away. I want you to speak, though, on the importance of rebates and why it wouldn't just be better if everybody paid a, 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 a fair, you know, 10% takeout or whatever. Is it that that's the wrong idea that everyone should pay a 10% takeout? Or is it that the horse is just so far out of the barn that that's not a realistic solution at this point? Well, I think it's the best solution, especially in this environment where most racetracks are subsidized um, uh, by slot revenue or whatever it might be, uh, that, uh, that, you know, a solution to me would be a low takeout for everybody Right, maybe that the teams and, and high volume players would get even a small rebate off of that. Right, if we had twelve percent takeout across the board, that still allows for high volume players to get some sort of rebate. But in an ideal world, we have one price for everybody, and the computers would still exist in that environment. Right, and uh, it would allow. I think it would open up the game for um, casual players. Uh, to uh, to win more often and and as they win more often to uh, learn more about the game and become more invested in the game and bet more it just it 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 really creates the opportunity for churn for all players right and that's you know we talked about slot machines earlier you know slot machine takeouts are you know nine percent and they can't be any higher right even if they have the most uneducated players out there if they were higher those players they would never win and they would go away. Right. Yep. So it's, it's, they subconsciously know it exists. I remember having a conversation uh, once in the, at the Arizona symposium with a slot operator and I asked them, you know, how come they don't raise their takeout from 9% to, to 18% like with horse racing. And they almost couldn't articulate uh, the notion of churn. 
right? But they understood it. Whereas in racing, we don't we don't understand it at all. And in some people's mind, that that we should keep the takeout the way it is and eliminate rebates altogether, right? And that would be uh, that would basically be a way for handle to go to to um, down the toilet, right? Yeah. It's important yeah, to that, understand. It's important to understand, and I think it's important for Horsens to, un- to understand, is that uh, these teams contribute a lot to the game, right? They're betting a lot of money, right? They're paying similar host fees to all players, right? Their their markup is just much lower from on the ADW front, and so for horsemen to think that these the, these um for horsemen to think that these teams are taking money out of their pocket is ridiculous. So that rebate, that yeah, rebate players are taking money out of their pocket is ridiculous. Right. And um, again, you know, it's incredible to me that they think about their, that, that what's being taken out of their pocket when they're often subsidized uh, by slot revenues. And so um, uh, the other thing to, to understand is that these teams, again, they, they contribute a lot to liquidity. Right. Um, so, so you can bet into these much larger pools. And if you're good at it, and if you structure your tickets and have an opinion, especially one that's counter to their opinion, you can do well, right? Um, when you beat favorites, when you knock favorites out of, uh, out of um, uh, the try and super, you're probably paid a lot more than you were in the past because of the more efficient pools, right? So um, if you're a long shot player, again, you're probably paid more than you used to. So there's certain types of players, long shot players, especially players who toss favorites. When they're hit, they're getting paid back more than they might have in the olden days because these markets are more efficient, right? Because the payouts are less flat. The other I'm thing is- throw, he's t- I'm going to throw one little uh, devil's advocate into there. I think I think what you're saying is probably right when you get what I'd call an X out horse in there like a really goofy long shot that's not logical. I feel like the second, third, and fourth choices with the favorite out are still super efficient. But it's when you get something a little bonkers in there that I think, you know, the a, a lot of what, we didn't really talk about this, and this is just me theorizing, so correct me if you disagree. But I think what a lot of these teams want to do in terms of efficiency is play as close to all, all, all as possible. But to make numbers work, certain horses have to be X'd out. That's where that term is coming from. If you can, if you can genuinely like a goofy horse that they're not going to like, um, I, that's where I think those things get triggered. I don't think it's just an automatic bias towards the favorite that exists from these teams. Yeah, well, it, it, it's if you get a goofy horse, especially in like the second second spot in a try, second or third spot in a super, right? A goofy horse underneath, or one goofy horse in a sequence is not going to is not going to make it, you know, in fact, in those cases, because of the, because of the way casual players play, right. Those tend to underpay. Right. So, so I think, I think your point is well taken. Um, But uh, you know, like I do think there's situations, I mean, that, that because of, you know, how sophisticated the computers are and really how sophisticated horse players are that we see nowadays that we wouldn't have seen um, in the, you know, even five years ago. And one, one is the acorn, right? The acorn, um, it's hard to envision without, you know, modelers and, and, you know, professional numbers players, or it's like money's gold going off his favorite over the Kentucky Oaks winner. Right. I mean, it's, that's, that's a, that's something that, that would have been hard to envision five years ago. And I think part of it's the teams. That's of course uh, the teams tend to like early speed, right. Tend to really, 
you know, horse that has, you know, really good pace numbers that uh, they tend to bet early speed, um, especially on the dirt. So money's goal is a horse that is a big number horse um, who shows early speed, who's likely to be controlling pace. And that was a, was a model horse. And a lot of uh, professionals glommed onto that horse and that horse went off his favorite over the Kentucky Oaks winner. So again, it's the situations where I just don't think that would have happened. And, and, you know, ultimately they were wrong. That horse finished off the board, right. And you end up getting this, um, you know, a 580 on the Kentucky Oaks winner. And, and I think that, uh, that we, we got to remember that they're, they are, um, they're often wrong. They're right more than they're wrong. Um, and, uh, in being right more than they're wrong, they're making just small amount on a per bet basis. Um, but because they're winning and because they're in all these different pools, they're able to make it add up and they're able to do so enough to cover their really high costs, right. In terms of programming, in terms of manpower, um, and everything involves to build these models and keep them going. A few things leap to mind in terms of advice to give to the casual player based on what you have done an excellent job laying out for us, Marshall. One is being more selective than ever. One is keeping things as simple as possible. Wind pool, you know, especially maybe wind pool in New York, but probably the wind pool generally playing fewer races, really trying to focus on, you know, you just, you can't be loose. If you want to win, you can't be loose at all, I would think. Those are two of the things that, that come to mind right away. What else would you tell the casual player? Where else do you think these computer players aren't in terms of game selection to maybe give the casual player a, a leg up to try to win or at least lose more and have more fun along the way? Well, I think that I think there's certain pools that they're less likely to be in. And, and we've already talked about that they're, they're not they're, – if they're in – if they're they're likely in the narrow win and the pick late pick five and the pick six, but they're in it, they're not doing it through elite, right? So they're if they're doing it, they're doing it on the sly and the, and it's at a much much lower rate, right? So you can even just see the numbers, the the late odds movements, which we haven't talked explicitly about here, but it's all it's you know it, it's all well known and it's really part of what they do is they have to bet last, they have to bet last to use the public's information. Um, uh, the the late money movements in the um, in the wind pool are much smaller than in uh, in the exacta pool. For example, this weekend um, at the at the Belmont Stakes, I had a big bet on. Um, I played a, a an exacta in the Met Mile of Cody's Wish over Slow Down Slow Down Andy. Uh, it was paying. No, maybe that that wasn't it. Maybe that wasn't my exacta because the numbers don't. Anyway, I was playing it. I was playing an exacta, um, and that couldn't be the exacta because that would have been much shorter price. But I was playing an exacta that was sixty dollars um, when they were loading, and when I looked after the race, it was twenty eight dollars. And so there's just a dramatic change. And so um, when the wind pool, there's almost no movement. So you know, look for the pools that they're less in. And again, we know that that's the narrow wind pool in, in certain certain multi race wagers. But I think. Just as important is in that is if you're going to play trifectas, superfectas, or multi-race wagers, you just have to be very good at your ticket construction. You can't overly spread, right? Overly spreading kills players, whether it's they're against computers or whether they're against professionals, right? You can't do four or five horse exacta boxes. 
uh, I, I would be use the all button very sparingly. So, you know, I still like playing the trifecta. I still like playing the superfecta, but when I do so, I do so in a very targeted way, right? I may play a trifecta that's, you know, one by three by two or, um, you know, you know, two by uh, two by two by one. I may, I may chart, I may in a trifecta instead of focusing on the winner, I focus on who I want to finish third, right? Or who I want to finish second, right? So I, I'll maybe find a 40 to one shot. I think that's a, a, a chance of hitting the board and play them in second in the exacta and third in the try with a couple of the logicals. And so I still love playing those wagers, but I am very uh, cognizant of um, that, that, you know, I try to very cognizant of the teams and of the professional players and try to, um, uh, you know, try to be very narrow in my approach. You said something very interesting there about using, you've used this example a couple of times throughout using the exacta and the try to express the same opinion is it, or the try and the super to express the same opinion is part of that just a question of wanting to keep things as simple as possible. If you can, if you can get it, if you can express your opinion, the exact that's simpler. So you want to do that, but you use the try as a complimentary bet in case your opinion horse runs third. I just think it's a really smart way of looking at the world that I don't think enough people do. I think most people would just play the try and, you know, mess around with the, with the numbers. Why are you doing it differently? Well, I don't, I don't, I, I sort of never use the all button in the uh, last, in the, in the last, in the, in the last hole of a wager. So I never, I, I don't do a superfecta that's one by two by two by all. Right. So instead, so if I, for example, I guess the wager I made on in the Belmont gold cup where I hit the super for a couple bucks, I keyed in part on your horse that, um, that you talked about on the, on British your Royal. pod, British royalty that was 60 to one. And, um, and so I, I keyed him with the gray wizard under Siskiny. And so instead, and then I, I actually used the Grey Wizard and keyed with Amazing Grey. So it, I, I had a number of different things going on with the horses that, that I was using. But I, I tend not to sweep underneath with the all button. Yeah, that's smart. And so, um, and so like in the long run, um, that's not – in the long run, that that's not going to be as effective as, as just betting the um, just betting the trifecta pool. So the superfecta um, with the all button fourth is going to pay less typically than the trifecta than the, than the same trifecta. Yeah. Now, probably in the case of, of with the gold cup, I didn't use the all button. I only used about four horses. And so, you know, I was creating tickets that were like one by two by maybe I used five, one by two by five by two, and then one by five by two by two. And so maybe I could have come back with one by two by two by five, but instead I just played the one by two by two trifecta makes more sense. You can hit it more times. I, I just, I just, yeah. And you can, and, and so, and you know, and, and when I make them, if my superfecta, you know, is $16, right. Then, you know, I make sure that if my superfecta total is $16, right. Based on maybe a, maybe a, a dollar minimum, then my try, since it's just those two combinations would be $8. So I'd hit the, when I hit the super, I hit it for a dollar. When I hit the try, I hit it for $8. Right. And so that typically is going to be better than using the all button in the fourth spot. Oh, yeah. And I've just, I, I, you know, I found that to be the case. Um, I even, as silly as this was back in my sort of more academic days, I'd publish an article about it, right? Just making synthetic wagers, like a synthetic, um, uh, a synthetic win bet using uh, exactas, 
uh, in synthetic uh, exacta using tries and found out that again that all button was never worthwhile using. When you say the, synthetic the, using exacta instead of win key horse overall. Yeah, well, it, it would really be if you did the synthetic. It'd be the the key horse over a weighted weighted over over a weighted, a weighted exacta. Still okay. better to bet the wind pool, right? Because the wind pool has a lower takeout. Right. Um, and I, I, look, I'm always for you know I, I I like betting to win. I think if you like a horse, you know you know if you like horse, bet it to win. I think where people get in real trouble is you know is is they're not they don't. They they can't take the they're willing to spread, and and get the same result as they would uh, uh, hitting a win bet, right? So you know, let's say a horse is three to one. I bet a hundred dollars to win. I'm going to get four hundred dollars back. What people often end up doing is they end up boxing exactas or trifectas. They bet their hundred dollars. They might get eighty dollars back. They might get six hundred dollars back. They might get two hundred fifty dollars back. They might get nothing back, right? So it's that there's. Uh, they feel some safety in spreading, and they also think by spreading that they have this chance of getting in a much larger payout. But what they're in, what they're really up in, is they're against sharks, and they're um, overcomplicating things by their ticket, and even setting themselves up to lose if their um, underneath horses don't come in. So you know, there's nothing wrong with betting to win, but we see that 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 especially casual players. Um, they don't, you know, they often don't take what's given to them. They want the big payout, right? And the casinos and the sports books have realized this uh, in players playing all sorts of uh, same game parlays and, par- you know, other parlays that, that result in, um, you know, uh, sports books are winning something like 17% of same game parlays, right? They're able to price it because players want these outsized payoffs with a low probability of happening, they're able to price it such that um, that it destroys players. And we see the same thing in our game, right? That that casual horse players get killed in these pools like the pick five and the superfecta because they aren't playing them correctly. And not only is the takeout getting to them in the superfecta, but, but especially um, the computer teams and the more professional players. I think that's indubitable. I mean, hey, I also will point out, if you're just looking to have some fun and you're not really trying to make money and and you're willing to pay for that lottery possibility of cashing the big ticket. You know, I'm not going to judge anybody who takes a flyer in the pick six or the pick five or a same game parlay. Just know what you're getting into. You know, if, if it's your, if you're trying to do this seriously and that's your go-to move, you're, you're dead meat at the same time, you know, no judgments. If that's, you know, fun, if that's your entertainment, God bless. We only have a couple more minutes, Marshall, because I have to move the car. Two quick things, though. Let me just jump in on that. And I think that's absolutely correct. But I would say if you're playing, you know, I would say that, look, if you like playing the pick five, you should still play the pick five. I don't, I think even, um, you know, even knowing that they're out there and they dominate these pools, that's not to mean that you don't have a good chance against them if you're at least somewhat decent about ticket construction. You cannot spread your way around, right? Even, you know, have a day at the track. Um, you know, even if you're a casual player and you just look at the racing form or, or even if you just pick horses uh, based upon their names or the jockey silks or their jockey, that's fine. Absolutely fine. But, you know, if, if you pick a horse because you like it because it's a gray, don't suddenly start making crazy tries and supers. Just bet the horse to win. Right. It doesn't you can the handicapping part is somewhat overrated. If you make efficient tickets, right, then you're just reducing the amounts you lose. There are plenty of good handicappers who really, really 
over, you know, who are great handicappers and then are, 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 um, are the worst betters because they overly spread and move away from their opinion where um, there are lots of people with, with poor opinions who are much better betters who bet their, what they, at least their one opinion is know how to structure a ticket and have a much better chance of winning long run. Completely agree. Hand, the handicapping is important, but it's nowhere near as important as betting in the long run. And if you need any evidence, I'm sure in your friend group, just like Marshall described in ours, you'll know people with some great opinions who are close to dead broke. <laughs> You're not going to find too many great betters who are broke. You won't find any, I would venture to say, except in very extreme circumstances or maybe when they're on the way up. All right. The two things I want to get to before we get out of here. One, I've already decided, Marshall, we should reconvene this, do a follow-up that's a Q&A. I want people to feel free to send in their questions about this area. Just go to the contact page on inthemoneypodcast.com. Send me an email. I'll queue them up. And if we get enough stuff, I'm sure we will. We'll do a follow-up show or at least a segment on the In The Money Players podcast. The other thing I wanted to ask you or just put forward to you is, as a proxy for knowing how much computer money is in a given pool, is it a good idea to maybe just track look at the last flash and see how much money is in the last flash as sort of a proxy for how much computer money there is. That's something I've tried to do to help me with game selection. Do you think it's valid? Yeah, I believe so. I, I don't, I, I believe that, that most of that last flash is computer money. And so look, there's certain tracks that um, you basically shouldn't look at the odds board, right? That the odds board uh, is, is, is not going to be predictive of all of the final prices. These are tend to be much smaller tracks. Um, the Mountaineer comes to mind where they get so much late money, it moves the odds so much that you're better off using imputed daily doubles, imputed the, the imputed win odds from the daily double to um, you're better off using that information. And, and it's also part of the algorithm that's in the DRF, uh, the DRF uh, uh, odds projections. If you, if you use the formulator, but if you use imputed win odds from the daily double, that's going to be better, a better prediction of the final odds at the smallest of racetracks. And at almost all racetracks, except, except for Naira, it's a better prediction of the final odds than the odds are themselves at um, one minute to post. Yeah, right. So there's so much movement from one minute to post that really, except for Naira, the double is going to be a better predictor. So if you look back through my, Twitter feed you can find I have a, a, a basically a two page write up on how to uh, uh, to impute your daily doubles. Um, if anyone wants to reach out to me, I can send them an Excel spreadsheet to do it for you. We can link that. We can link that in the show notes if you want. So let's let's sure. consider doing that. That's a great that's a great thing. We're talking to some tracks about maybe getting them to do it for us, which I think would just be helpful to everybody involved. Hopefully, we'll have a follow up on that. And then I and, wanted to and, ask and look, I, one more point to that. I don't think that's a reason not to play those tracks, right? I don't think these right. computers aren't beatable, right? I think that um, you know if you do your handicapping, if you have uh, an interesting angle. Uh, that the, that might not be able to pick up in a model. If you can, be, you know, use small sample size decision making is what I always talk about when I teach my economics of racetrack waging markets class. You can you can come up with something before the models do, before the general public does. Then it's worth taking advantage of. If you know a trainer's going cold, right, or see a jockey who's suddenly uh, riding off form, right, and you jump on that before everyone else does, before it gets before it gets built into the data, That's then great. by all means, don't. I wouldn't avoid 
these small tracks because of it, right? I think in some ways they're, you know, uh, if, if you do your homework, uh, you know, they're absolutely playable. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, I'd like to say with bias stuff as well, but people are so quick to jump the gun on that. The other thing I definitely wanted to ask you about was two-day wagers or multi-track wagers. Have you seen what we've theorized that the computers, for whatever reason, they're in those pools, but they seem like they're less likely to have the same kind of tote access and they present maybe some better opportunities, true or false, or do you not know? No, absolutely. Absolutely. That these these multi-day or multi-track wagers, the cross-country wager, uh, the... Uh, uh, tend to have higher projected payouts than what we're typically seeing on the pick three, pick four, pick five. It's pretty easy to measure what the projected payout should be as a multiple of the parlay. The great thing in horse racing is the double, the pick three, the pick four, all these wagers should pay more than the parlay because the take it, it, uh, it, you know, it should pay more than parlay in almost all cases, because the takeout, where you, the the way the premature pool works, is that the takeout on the pick five only happens once, right? They pull that money out once. Whereas if you pay five consecutive win wagers, you're getting hit with the takeout each time. So we're able to actually determine that in most cases the pick five should pay twice what the parlay is. Now, because of the teams and because of you know, it's not just the teams. We have to remember that it's the teams. It is it is um, other professional. Uh, professional handicappers. There are plenty of people who are teams who aren't computer-based teams, right? Um, I met someone over the weekend who has a handicapping team uh, that's not computer-based but plays uh, multi-race wagers and is and does it very effectively. And then uh, the other part of it is we just the the fish are gone, right? A lot of the casual players, the numbers players, um, aren't at the races with the exception of the Triple Crown. And so because all these all these uh, casual fans or the, the, the casual fans and numbers players are gone and they're more computers and they're more professionals. And even the people who are still learning the game, they can learn so much quicker uh, as a result of, uh, you know, the Fox show or TVG or, um, you know, your podcasts is that um, they're much, you know, the, the public is much smarter in general. And that, that changes, uh, you know, that changes all of these payouts and makes them a lot lower. This has been great, Marshall, and I do think we'll we'll do it again. You know, this is not a not a standalone, but I mean, just so much great information. I'm learning stuff from you all the time talking about this. So, unless you have a closing thought, I think we'll leave it here for now and come back to it with that Q and A idea. If you're game for that, I didn't run that by you before, but I assume you will be. No, I'm absolutely game, and and, and you know, just basically close to this is I wouldn't be afraid of the computer teams. I think you can beat the computer teams. You just have to do your homework. You have to bet efficiently. You have to be, um, you know, smart about this sort of small sample size decision making. And when you have an edge, make sure to exploit it because there are many situations where they're wrong, right? It's just that, you know, if you're going to get sucked into betting races that that you have very little information about and uh, and are quick capping, then you know expect to, you know, you can still you know win, but that winning is going to be variance, right? And you're likely to lose long run. Marshall, we'll have you back soon. Thanks again for your time today. Really appreciate you. Just want to give you the the heartiest of thanks for coming up with this idea. I think this is a show people are going to come back to again and again. Again, hit us up with questions through the contact page over at InTheMoneyPodcast.com or wherever you can find us. What's your Twitter, Marshall? Uh, I've changed it to DGen Econ Prof. 
So my Twitter is now DGen Econ Profit was Trucks and Stables, which I don't even run under anymore. So it is now uh, at DGen Econ Prof on Twitter. You can find me. Last question. Did economics lead you to horse racing or did horse racing lead you to economics? Uh, I was in horse racing way before economics, but I found, and this is a, sort of a wonderful thing for me. I did my, uh, I, I was an undergrad econ major. I went to graduate school in economics and doing my research on you know, banking regulation, really dull stuff. But then I, you know, did a search on econ lit and found out that there were hundreds of articles written, written on betting markets. And um, early on, I went to a conference organized by the late Richard Tallheimer at the University of Louisville, his equine industries program. They had an, a, a basically horse racing economics conference with people in economics, finance and psychology, sociology, and had, you know, 100 people presenting economics related research on horse racing, a lot of it on betting markets. And uh, basically I found my my life's calling is to do my research on betting markets. And, and I'd already been betting horses, but this is a way to uh, to uh, turn my uh, hobby into, uh, into uh, uh, academic research. And uh, the one thing that was a little bit different for me is that, that most of the people doing research on horse racing weren't as big a better as I was. And so a lot of my early research is actually well, uh, you said more practical applications. And so uh, it's been very lucky for me. It's made my career. Best cover ever for the degenerate lifestyle goes to Marshall Graham. Thank you again. Thanks to our founding partners, 10 Strike Racing. Most of all, also the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. Thanks most of all to all of you for listening. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatal. May you win all your photos.